Hey everybody, welcome back to Not Safe for Wonks. Y'all know me, I'm Kennedy Cooper. This is Brandon Buchanan. We also have a friend of the show here, somebody who you might remember if you have listened to all of our best episodes at the very least. If you know the lore. Yeah, the deep lore of the pod. Uh, Lau, welcome back. Hey, what's going on? First two-time guest in the history of this show. When we had you on, we said we got to get you back ASAP. And, you know, we hang out on the Discord and all the other stuff. But um, doing an episode is a very special experience. It's very cool. So we're always glad to have you on. And uh, it's great. Yeah. I'm glad to be back. So I got some plugs, if you don't mind. Plug it right up front, man. Let people yeah, know you're doing over Drop there. a plug. Lau is doing awesome stuff. And that should be appreciated oh, yeah. right now. <laughs> I don't know how much you want to talk about the big stuff that you're doing slash are affiliated with, but like, just spill everything, man. Yeah. Just let, right, let the world know it. how great. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did try to do a speed run of the Phenomenology of Spirit, which is a book by the German philosopher G.W.F. Hegel, and I totally failed. I quit after five straight hours of reading Hegel. My voice started feeling like barbed wires, <laughs> and I just couldn't continue. I mean, honestly, five straight hours of Hegel is an accomplishment. Yeah, that's, that's definitely more than like 99% of so-called intellectuals say they've read. But yeah, it was brutal. I didn't expect it to be that bad. I was expecting to go like 24 hours straight, but my voice was too weak. When you become a United States senator and you've got to like filibuster some bullshit bill that they bring down there, you are going to get a second chance to do phenomenology of spirit and you're going to fucking destroy that shit. And it's going to be just amazing. Hopefully like Leia or Ren is like working on your staff or something by the time that happens. Yeah, I'll read both like translations and all that. <laughs> You know, you just, you have to do it again, but with like uh, some breaks where you just stop and drink some tea with lemon in it. Just don't say anything for like 10 straight minutes. All right, now back to it. <laughs> well, like, here's the thing. Like, if you were to do it with two people, if you think about it, like a live stream, usually the live streamer doesn't solo run. They interview, they do a little back and forth. So like, if you were to do it with theoretically, like me and Ken and Leia or something like that, People would still count it. Like, they're not right. going to be like, well, he didn't solo it. <laughs> Phenomenology of Spirit is definitely a, a multiplayer speed run, in my opinion. <laughs> but yeah, this is like uh, Dark Souls. You know, somebody's played Dark Souls 2, and they think, oh, it's really hard. But you haven't played the original. You don't know how to get good. You haven't read the manga. You haven't read the manga. Yeah. <laughs> so listen. You know, Marianne is not doing so well in the polls. And I really thought, honestly, I truly believe that she was going to make it to the October debate. Now I'm unsure. I still think things are possible. It's not impossible. That's for sure. Because like, there's still quite a bit of time for her to shift those polls, but it's looking uncertain. And you know, uh, from the very beginning, before Marianne announced, I was basically just going to be a Bernie bro for 2020. And so, you know, I'm kind of feeling like maybe I'll just go back to being a Bernie bro. And, you know, Bernie's oh basically, he's just going to, he's going to get into office Dude. and he's going to, he's going to do Medicare for all okay. and, 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 and housing for all. And he's just going to fix everything basically. Right. It'd be like Trump never happened. Right. Like that's, that's how this works. Okay. First of all, you've messed, you've messed the bit up because I'm supposed to say <laughs> Oh, that's gonna, is that gonna work? Is that gonna fix everything? So, okay. wait. Okay. I didn't start with I'm gonna be a Bernie bro, and then I'll go. Uh, I, I'm just, you know, I'm gonna be a Bernie bro now for oh, the rest God. of the 2020. Oh, God. You know? Okay, listen. I like Bernie. I like him. He's a cool guy. And, and yeah, before Mariana Mania ran wild on me. Uh, I, I was a Sanders person as well. So what you're basically saying here is you want to put Bernie in there and we get his policies, right? We get the Medicare for all. We get the housing for all. He's got a lot of stuff that's for all right now. Right. I think he rolled out like 12 for alls this week. Um, He's got a for all for that. That's his new uh, campaign <laughs> slogan. <laughs> so, okay. So Bernie gets in there and we all get all of everything, right? Yeah. And everything's done. It's all fixed. We can move on. We could just, you know, we could stop paying attention to politics again. 
We're gonna get justice for all. Kennedy, you're supposed to be the doomer. <laughs> we, our doomer isn't here. That's the real problem, see? Yeah, that's true. Leia's not our here this not week here. to bring the yeah. hot doomer takes. We're trying to do a bit, but we just keep messing it up because Brandon and I both actually do have hope for the world. The bit is supposed to be that Bernie can't actually fix everything, folks. That's the joke. That's the punchline. I'm just giving it away. <laughs> God, just disgusting. <laughs> if you ever listen to any left-leaning podcast that talks about Sanders, they never are happy to support Sanders. They never like are like, hey, we get it, we get Bernie in here, and we're gonna wreck some shit, make some change, and we'll all be happy. At least that I've heard of. Like maybe you guys have some Sanders-centric podcasts that are like happy and positive. I'm sure they're out there. Yeah, I'm sure that they exist. Just I haven't heard any. Usually it's like, well, he's the compromise with the uh, neoliberal order, and uh, we don't think he'll actually accomplish anything. Nothing will get passed, but the aggressiveness through which the capitalists will attack him will expose the contradictions in capitalism and make way for a new order, a new socialist order, a new green order, whatever you want to call it. That represents the final end of the neoliberal order. Oh, by the way, you guys heard the Mayor Pete's against neoliberalism now? <laughs> Did you guys see the tweet? He said neoliberalism <laughs> has been the dominant ideology of both parties for the last 40 years. And when I'm elected, that ideology is going to come to an end. My jaw was just on the floor. I was fucking speechless. That's like Colonel Sanders making a tweet talking about it's time to go vegan. Chicken has been the dominant Fucking fried chicken's been dominant meat for the last 44 years. And when I'm elected, fucking fried chicken's coming to an end. Like, yeah. have you guys seen that gif of the guy just blinking stupefied? That's on yeah. Twitter all the time. That was me. What? That's amazing. So, yeah. But anyway, yeah, he's going to expose the, the, the neoliberal order. And I just have no patience for that ideology. Are you here to, like, help people or not? I don't know where Kennedy exactly is. If Leia was here, you know, she could yell at me or whatever. But just the idea that, like, well, the only way out of this is this thing that I read about in a history book from 1912. And when the people have suffered enough, there will be an uprising. It's like, okay, where's, where, what do your parents do for a living? What tax bracket are you in individually for you to have the luxury of having this ideology? And can you give me half of what your parents are making this year? Since you, <laughs> since you seem to be good, like you're, you, uh, are talking about the people like it's something that's separate from you. I've never seen any of these fucking podcast doomers say, well, I'll probably die, but the future will be okay. Everybody in an apocalyptic scenario is just like, well, the rest of y'all motherfuckers won't make it, but I individually will. The only person with the true black pill doomer take, Leia did say, well, I'm gonna fucking die. <laughs> I'm not gonna make it through this shit. None of us will, but the world will probably survive in our stead. If you're wondering, audience, like, where is this crazy, rough episode featuring Lao kind of coming from? It's like, this literally just came from, like, a discussion on our Discord that we were having about politics. And we found it even though, like, we kind of have now just, we're just kind of rushing headlong into this episode. Like, this kind of seemed more interesting than just doing the topics that we had maybe had planned. Because, like, this whole hope versus hopelessness thing... Uh, Everybody is, listening to this show is probably been on your mind for a while yeah like you're probably looking at the future and sometimes thinking is there a future like i mean i feel like everybody kind of has to be feeling that way at times right now you know and as we had this discussion on the discord i was thinking in my head you know it would be great if fucking lao showed up right now before you know <laughs> things got pitch black in terms of the darkness and as if i had summoned him with my mind he actually did come into the thread he talked about cool stuff and gave us some inspiration to continue. And as we talked about this, we thought well, we should just have Lau on the show because everybody listening to this, if you take the shit that's happening this week and the last 30 years in terms of the climate seriously, you are occasionally thinking about what the end of human civilization is going to look like. Um, <laughs> and I guess I should just go into this. Like, I've just felt really bummed about this kid, Greta Thunberg, who has been like marched around from place to place like fucking Air Bud. <laughs> no, like, it feels like we're in a fucking Black Mirror episode. This kid yeah. gets, like, outraged yeah. about the impending destruction of the human race, and then everybody fucking giggles at her and is like, oh, like, they all go, oh, she knows we're all gonna die. 
and she looks fucking horrified at us. Like she did that speech and, you know, near the beginning, she talks about how the eyes of the children and the eyes of the world are on them. And people just start snickering at her. Like, listen, if you guys have just been looking at this via Twitter and haven't like listened to her address, she's a very passionate speaker, all that stuff. But listen to the audience because they are not taking her seriously at all. And like, why would they? She's a kid. But like, why did the media select her? to be the ambassador for our impending doom with the highest stakes in the, the history of civilization. And why did they they pick like this air but like this fucking air bud act to balance a fucking basketball on her shoulders. And she goes to the Daily Show and if you haven't seen her on the Daily Show it's very much the same thing. Every time she talks people like slay queen and they all fucking clap for her. Or, 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 or. She's a comedy act. She's like a she's a she's a skit. And this isn't funny to her. That's right. what makes it funny to them. The fact yeah. that it's not that she's genuinely horrified makes it funny to the audience and makes it like fucking interesting to them. Do you mind if I um, read a quote from one of Kierkegaard's pseudonyms novels? By all means. <laughs> this is what we bring you here for. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm here to I'm here to black pill everyone out of their despair and hopelessness. Um, this is from Either Or, uh, volume one. And it's written by a pseudonym of Kierkegaard's named A. And so A is A is like a character who's into like the aesthetics. And he's really into the like immediate sensations of reality and all these fictitious works and stuff. But so he 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 writes this. So in the theater, it happened that a fire started off stage. The clown came out to tell the audience. They thought it was a joke and applauded. He told them again, and they became still more hilarious. This is the way, I suppose, that the world will be destroyed amid the universal hilarity of wits and wags who think it is all a joke. Yeah, like, goddamn. I don't know where you, you seem to always have the fucking perfect statement for the situation. But yeah, and it bums me out because, like, I don't like to, like, look at the one situation and point at it and go, okay, this is fucked up. I mean, that's a good way of thinking about it. But, like, how'd it get fucked up? Whenever I see something fucked up, I think, how'd it get this way? So uh, how is she uh, propped up by these people that are paying for her travel or paying for her to sail from, you know, one place to the other because flying on an airplane would be seen as hypocritical and used to dismiss, okay? Who are the people that picked her specifically in the media, you know, in the media that picked her as like the voice for climate awareness? Aren't there people who are adults and qualified and charismatic? Is there not one big titty climate scientist? Like... <laughs> All right, listen, if you're listening to this, no, listen, picture it. Look, look, climate scientist. Okay, who is that person that's in your brain right now? When, when I gave you, they probably have big titties because I just implanted that on you. But aside from that, are they wearing like a lab coat? Are they wearing glasses? What does their voice sound like? Is this a person who you would take seriously? Is this a person who you'd listen to? Is this a person you'd be a fan of? Is this a person you think you could beat in a fight? There literally must mathematically be somebody who's like a phenomenal speaker, who is working in the actual real world of politics and is working to remove from power the actual literal human beings that are destroying the world. That person must exist, but I don't know who they are. Like, aside from Bill Nye, anybody here on this podcast have a climate scientist that they find really insightful or interesting that I should no. be following on Twitter or whatever? Lau, you got somebody? Well, um, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> no, Neil not Neil deGrasse Tyson. Tyson. He's got no. some pretty nice tits, though. No, no, no. That's not Neil. <laughs> no, no. He's okay. canceled. It's true that Neil deGrasse Tyson canceled. technically technically is a big titty climate scientist but he's not even really a climate scientist is he? he's just an <laughs> also he's, no. he's he's no, super he's canceled yeah so. and, yeah he's canceled says, yeah kennedy's like all right he's super canceled so given that why are we not aware of that person and we're super into politics yeah it's pernicious like there's no genuine interest in actually solving the situation from anybody in power, which is why she's mad, which is why they think it's funny, which is why we're all fucking doomers. <laughs> like, if you're watching this from the side, you're like, okay, well, we're fucked. Yeah, it's it's hard to look at a situation like that. And all credit to Greta. Like, she's an amazing kid for doing what she's doing. This isn't to, like, to diminish her in any way, but you just look at this situation where, yeah, she's been made into this sort of cartoon mascot of the climate, and then conservatives all over the internet are just, you know, making the biggest deal about, you know, this 
angry girl who's the face of socialism and you know all this all this crazy like you can't just like let this kid be upset about the future and like move on with your day like the whole thing is really weird and uh yeah there's definitely this perception i feel like a lot in the way that this gets evaluated by a lot of the people who are giggling from the outside that sort of like you know oh when i was a kid i thought things you know, were important that weren't two or something. You know what I mean? Like, she's just a kid. She doesn't know anything. She'll grow out of this. Yeah, I used to believe something until I became a doomer. (laughs) I used to have beliefs, and now I have none. (laughs) I used to argue things in good faith, but then I... Oh, man, I can't even... Yeah, Yeah, like, as as she said in, in, in her own speeches, but I would just like to emphasize it with more of a broad indictment. Why is she there? Why is she not like at home living her life and chilling? Why aren't the people with the actual power in that room? They have all the fucking same information she's got. It's infuriating. So given that, given what we know, Kennedy, let me ask you, what do you think is going to happen in the next 20 years? (laughs) That's just a big open-ended question. Yeah, don't, I don't want to hear like what you hope will happen. Like, that's cool. I'll talk about what I hope will happen. Yeah. Give your genuine logical i mean you know logic can be pernicious sometimes like you don't have to ignore emotional thought or whatever but just give your level grounded take if you had to bet a billion dollars on what you think will happen in the next 15 years so i guess i think it's a little bit important to put this into the context of something i said earlier in like the discord discussion which is like i feel torn and how I see the future, because I do relate to the doomerism. But a part of me is hopeful and and not just hopeful in like the sense, like you said, like we could have these hopes about the future, what the future could be that aren't necessarily realistic. But even in my realistic takes, I, I feel like I still have some hope. Uh, and I think part of that comes from like, honestly, living through the Bush era, which like, I don't know. It just it felt darker than this somehow in the sense that like at least during these dark times, I'm doing this podcast right now and having this conversation with you guys. You know what I mean? Totally. Like that's that feels significant, you know, things like that. The fact that these conversations are happening feels significant. So just based on the fact that I get to it all expound upon the future right now, I have to believe that there's some hope in it. (laughs) And so with that in mind, I think America is in a very precarious place. I think we're on the verge of some kind of dissolution of power that could be somewhat ugly. And I tend to like think of like the USSR somewhat and how it could no longer sort of just maintain its contracts to its member states. And like if the federal government can't sort of pull its reins together in the next couple of presidencies (laughs) and sort of like get on a new path, Uh, I think that America is very likely to dissolve in some fashion, and it may not be a particularly pretty fashion. So I think that that's like that looms on my mind a lot. Honestly, if I think about like the next couple of decades, and I know a lot of people might like look at that take and be like, whoa, the next couple of decades, that's insane. That could never happen that fast. But like the Soviet Union, it happened that fast. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, we're already in a really bad situation in terms of being able to sustain what we have going. And the Soviet Union from the outside looked great. There were just certain economic indicators. And then the bottom fell out. And then it was like, well, let's all go home. So it's hard for that not to be something I think about a lot, like I said. But if I wanted to give a slightly more positive take, I think that If y'all haven't seen, it was just announced in the news that the impeachment inquiry has started into Trump. Uh, I don't think he'll be impeached personally, but I think the impeachment inquiry will be very damning. Even from the perspective of a guy who's somewhat quote-unquote bulletproof, this is the kind of stuff that still takes you down a peg. So I think that Trump is very likely to lose in 2020. And that if we get somebody halfway decent into office, such as Marianne Williamson, such as Bernie Sanders, that America is on track. And I know you kind of were implying like the whole world, but the reason I'm just talking about America is because it's where I live. And also like what happens in America is going to affect a lot of the world. (laughs) So yeah, I think that America 
could kind of shift gears a little bit and that if everybody pulls together around this climate crisis, that we could keep our society as we know it somewhat intact, but with the caveat that we're still going to face over the next couple of decades a major migration pattern, the likes of which we haven't seen in many centuries, and that that is going to change politics irrevocably. I think that you left off in the perfect spot because that was kind of what I wanted to focus on myself. Miss Williamson has said that large groups of desperate people should be seen as a national security risk. And I think we're going to have many large groups of desperate people, both inside and outside the country, as the climate continues to worsen. I do not think human beings have responded positively to refugees politically in the entire industrialized history of the world. It would take a spiritual awakening, the likes of which we have never seen in human history for us all to say, well, we have to come together as a human race. We have to transcend our differences. We have to bring these people in, especially because we're responsible for the destruction of their you know, natural living place. I mean, we're all going to make adjustments and there's enough for everybody, etc. One of the problems is right now maybe looked back on as the good old days, because when someone gets on a podium and says there's enough for everyone to live, it's true. We don't know for sure whether that's going to always be true, whether that's an immutable fact of existence on this earth uh, as the climate changes or as, you know, there are in the Arctic strains of bacteria that have been frozen for hundreds or thousands of years that there is no cure for, no modern study of. So if some of these ice caps melt and some skeletons unfreeze and a bunch of weird viruses, even just one or two, come from the north and start messing with people that way, then you have a, a huge health hazard. There are just going to be a ton of need for resources that aren't going to exist. And when you are in a situation where we're deciding like who lives and who dies, it's going to get really tribal and really ugly and really murderous really quick. We don't know exactly how climate change is going to manifest itself or at what speed or exactly who's going to be impacted first by it. So it's possible that we'll be able to see these changes in a way that gives us the opportunity to get our shit together. Obviously, a lot of this stuff is going to be irreversible if we don't start working on it before, but there may be like a political situation that lets us do that before things are irretrievable for human life in the universe. And I don't think that the elite, quote unquote, the elite want to live in bunkers. <laughs> like everybody says that, like, well, they don't care that they're destroying the climate because they're going to live in a bunker and the rest of us are going to die. Like, dude, have you ever been rich? Rich people don't like living in a fucking bunker. They like stunting on people. They like going out <laughs> to places. They like having things. So I just don't see that as many people's end game of like, they're going to hire security and live somewhere because look, in that situation, that's not safe. You know, if like, let's say that we make our billion dollars off this podcast and we're on the island and there's climate change. All right. We got to hire like security to protect our island, right? Well, who's in charge of the security? How much resources are the security guards going to have? And how much training are the security guards going to have? Are they better trained than us? Are they going to want the shit that we have? Who's going to like be the cop and be the law and keep the peace in that situation? Yeah. Can I survive in a gunfight with my security? Is there a way for me to control them? Like, these are the things that you'd have to think about if you're like, no, if you're like legitimately equipped to survive a real apocalypse and not like a cosplay, I built a bunker, I built a ranch kind of deal. I don't think people want to live in a doom world. I think there are a lot of people that don't believe in it or don't care or want to squeeze out a certain amount of money before it hits. But like... It's very hard to, and Lau, maybe you can square this circle. If you're powerful, maybe it's just the fact that you're in competition with other powerful people and none of you have the ability to pull up before you hit the ground. But surely they're educated and they, they know. Like the regular Republican rubes, obviously they're like, no disrespect if you're a Republican rube listening to this podcast, but you're like stupid. You really don't know the difference between fact and fiction and you literally just go along with whatever emotionally feels good to you. But the people that actually fund the Republican Party, like the Mitt Romneys of the world, of course they understand what climate change is. So what's stopping them from like helping the rest of us survive? Are they afraid of the rubes? And like what hope do we have 
in a world where these people are behaving this way. Yeah, what's the what do what do you feel like is the yeah. way out of that tailspin in terms of concrete action and what what's the way out in terms of our emotional perspective on this? I love that we just shoveled the hardest <laughs> no, fucking man. question in human civilization <laughs> right now. Lao, f- fucking help us, man. Please. But as I said, as we said before we went on air, we're the Looney Tunes. We come out here and we tell jokes and you have got to be fucking Michael Jordan in Space Jam and oh, score geez. the points. So how do we survive this shit, man? You know, guys, <laughs> I can only save myself. You guys are fucking screwed. I don't God know. God damn it, Lyle. God damn it. No. God damn it. <laughs> I no, here, here. Here's, here's, my, here's my take. You realize, like, I think maybe this is the first time. Well, not, not exactly. But I think this is the first time that the current people in power, that they feel that their power is threatened by something that is just all-encompassing, right? And I think that this whole idea of, like, rich people going to bunkers is this sort of fantasy that they can just survive by the use of money. And... I want to be really clear that in some way it's true that whatever rich people are doing right now and trying to in trying to attempt to um, protect themselves from climate change or this existential threat comes from the same sort of despair that many of us are feeling. And I'm not saying that we should definitely relate to rich people as such, but my hot take on all of this is really that this sort of doomeresque, desperate, hopeless view of the world in the future is really rooted in. It's become the status quo. Mm. This is the sort of reality of that we have been living in. And I think that this extends all the way back to like the 80s, right? Or even the 90s, right? So after the fall of the Soviet Union, there really was no alternative to the socioeconomic structure of capitalism, right? Right. And from the leftist perspective, they're already fighting a losing battle ideologically. After the fall of the Soviet Union, what kinds of texts or sources or examples or data can you pull from to really try to um, persuade the public, for example? It's a, there's multiple factors going into this, for sure. And I do and have sort of uh, related to this Doomer picture that there's really nothing we can do about our predicament and about how, about which direction human civilization is going. I definitely feel that. And I understand that so many of us feel absolute despair and hopelessness about the situation. Mm-hmm. I think that's really only a natural reaction to it. But it, it doesn't excuse us, right? Suppose that 10 or 20 years from now, any of our children uh, look back at history and they see that we literally did jack shit about the climate um, crisis. It's not going to end well, right? The responsibility of that sort of project to really attempt to save climate change, that responsibility falls on us right now at this current moment. So on the one hand, it is true that in some ways we are justified in feeling this absolute despair and hopelessness about our present situation. And also the recognition that, you know, maybe I or maybe you, maybe even certain groups of people can't really do anything to change the situation. But on the other hand, that, that never does excuse us from that responsibility of seeking the good in the future, right? Hmm. And what kind, of, what kind of good can we see in the future? Really, I don't know. It's politically possible inside our current political system for us to mitigate the worst of climate change if we were to start right now. Like we can we can do a foundation uh, Hari Seldon look into the future. And if someone from the future were to come back to us and say we made it, you can picture in your head what that would look like, right? Like maybe electoralism. We win a bunch of Senate seats this year. Trump is impeached and disgraced. The economy is going okay. There's this big spending on the climate, this world war mobilization or whatever. A lot of people complain about it, but it's fine. People go to work. And by the way, you know, national morale is a very fragile thing. Like it's maybe been kind of down the last three or four years. I think even amongst people that like supported Trump, do any of you guys have like Trump supporting friends, relatives that don't talk about politics anymore? Not really. They seem to be really happy with the situation. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, well, I know I know some people that used to be big into Trump and now they're like, oh, politics. It's so confusing. What do you know? I think deep down they know like things are fucked up. They just don't want to like admit. Yeah, they don't they don't want to say, oh, I was just 100 percent wrong. I mean, who wants to do that? Let's be nobody real. wants on. to just admit that nobody. They were yeah, or or just really about almost any subject. Like nobody wants to just be like, "Yes, I was completely wrong. Me, I fucked up." You know, like that's just not. But yeah, I've also I know some people like 
this woman and her husband, they both voted for Trump and they were very happy at first. And now he still says he likes Trump, but he doesn't talk about it as much. And she's like, she won't say it in front of him, but she's like, yeah, I, I, it, it's this is fucking bogus, basically. Like, honestly, you know how people are. They'll stick the party line like she may vote Trump again, but she's not happy anymore. You know? Well, if I could chime in, um, yeah. I think what's going on right now, in my mind, and this might be some material for a later podcast uh, when I talk about Kierkegaard's two ages, there's two kinds of denial, right? There's this sort of denial about what we think is the objective truth about the world. And so the objective truth and situation of our world right now is that climate change is coming and it's coming fast. And you know, these climate scientists are right, right? We have all the data to show that if we don't solve our shit in like 18 months, the effects of climate change will be irreversible, right? So there's that kind of denial that a few people do have. There are indeed climate deniers, right? And they, for whatever for whatever reason, it just seems like that isn't really convincing, right? And no matter how much data you can throw at them, they're not going to budge on their perspective and worldview. Now, this is a little bit more, I guess, controversial. And this is the second form of denial that I think like maybe 99% of us do have. And it is a kind of denialism that involves a sort of dissociation with what we actually believe and how we're living our lives, right? So right now, we are talking about climate change on this podcast that maybe a handful of people um, listen to, right? And there are a bunch of people working right now in the United States trying to get money to feed their families and whatnot and blah, blah, blah. And nonetheless, some of these people do believe that climate change is happening and it's happening rapidly. So why this sort of dissociation between what they believe is the truth and it's an actual urgent truth and the way that they're living their lives, right? Well, they, they feel powerless, you know. Like it's happening, but they can't really. I mean, I feel that way. I feel that way too. I mean, history, we kind of feel like it's going to go the way it goes. And our hand is not on the wheel. It's interesting because we talked to Leia. She's not here, but her presence like looms over the episode. And she was like, I, I feel like I'm kind of responsible for what happens. So I want to try to do something that's good so that I don't contribute to what might come. And I've, I feel kind of the opposite. Like there's, it literally doesn't matter what I do. There's basically nothing that I'm going to do that's going to change the spirit of the times or whatever. But in a way that's kind of liberating. Okay, well, what do you want to say you did? I want to say that I tried something, that I, I spoke about the issue. I tried to organize people around the issue. And maybe in at least some small local level, we accomplished something to hold back the fucking tidal wave. I don't know. The way I see it, it's like the issue of gay marriage. The way that that changed, like the studies that have come after about how people's minds changed on that issue, it didn't happen through anything from the top. It just happened through people realizing that they had gay friends and didn't know it or that they had friends who were allies who were willing to talk to them that, you know, they didn't realize, you know, that these resources were around them waiting to educate them and make them more aware of what this really meant. And uh, I, I just kind of always feel like inspired to provoke this idea into people. And I have definitely seen it in action that like just your ability to have a conversation with anyone about these topics is powerful. I think um, the main difference between the gay marriage issue and the climate issue is gay marriage didn't cost anybody any resources. Like you literally just had to stop being a shithead and let other human beings live in peace. Yeah, but that sounds like wonk talk to me. Well, okay. <laughs> I mean, whatever you want to say about like, it. But no, seriously, it, it's a, it's, it, this emotional stuff is kind of more... No, no, no. Here's what I'm saying, though. Here's what I'm saying, because I think we agree. Yeah, okay. It is what we need. We need a scale of change in the way that we think about the climate that's like the scale of the way that we thought about gay marriage, where it was an impossibility in like 2008. And then in 2011, it was just like the inevitable position. Yeah. Like over just that three year period. And obviously, like there's activism work that went on for decades, but there's also been activism work that went on for decades about the climate. And it's not like there's never been any positive change when it comes to 
to our approach to the climate. Obviously, there was stuff with the ozone layer years ago. And look, we don't have an ozone problem anymore. I mean, there's still a hole in the ozone layer, but it's mostly patched. Like, it was fixed. There was concrete action taken, and things happened. I don't want to dunk on anybody, but yeah, it happened. (laughs) It didn't require, like, anybody to get stabbed in the chest with a pitchfork or anything. It just took, like, concerted action to do that. Yeah. And why not for this? Well, here's the thing, right? Is that I actually unironically believe that we are not powerless. And what I mean by that is that for the most part, the kinds of solutions that I've been hearing about are these kinds of of solutions that happen on our representational electoral level, right? We got to pass some laws about climate change, and then we got to put some executive orders in, and then blah, 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 and then eventually we'll reach a decision like that. And this is the reason why I appreciate Marianne Williamson, because she frames it in a, in a very uh, radically different way. In the way that she puts it, or she has put it, I believe, in her post-debate um, live stream is that she doesn't want to just do things as a president. She wants to co-create, right? And so what does co-creation involve? It involves a kind of power that does take place on a presidential or executive level, um, but it also takes place on the sort of grassroots individual level as well. And, you know, this sort of framing, I think it's an ideological trap to think that, as you've um, both mentioned, like, oh, Bernie Sanders is going to fix everything. If we just get Bernie (laughs) Sanders elected, then he's just going to fucking make anime real and fucking give us communism. We'll all have cat girl girlfriends. Even if you are a girl and already have a girlfriend, you'll have another one now and it's a cat girl. Thanks, Bernie. Right. Thank you, Bernie. (laughs) Good luck on getting uh, 60 senators on your side to pass your laws. But so that's what I'm saying is like, um, I guess we're so trapped in this sort of representational way of expressing power. Like if we get this president involved, he's going to solve everything or she's going to solve everything. If we get these senators elected, you know, we're going to blah, 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 blah. But I really do think that if we entertain the idea that power happens on an individual level, I think that we can sort of see a way to redemption, right? That might be the answer that we're looking for. And it does involve this sort of idea of co-creation. It takes a power to create, first of all, but to co-create, it involves multiple people and it doesn't take place on a represent... You understand what I mean by a representational politics, right? I think so. Right. Like, so you like you have some certain interests in mind and then you elect some official to represent those interests. And then that person pretty much has all the power in trying to get the laws passed that serve interests. And what I'm saying is that power, representational power in this way is not enough to deal with this climate change problem. And uh, let me be clear that it does involve a mass mobilization of groups and individuals in order to solve it. But where does that power come from? I'm not exactly convinced that it does come from a president. Maybe, right? I really do think that it comes from a grassroots level that involves individuals as such in trying to attempt to um, mitigate these climate change issues. One more point about what Marion Williamson was trying to say about climate change too. It's really nice the way that she put it because what she was saying was California has their own climate change issues and they're going to be different from the ones that Texas has. So Marion Williamson is acknowledging to some extent that these climate change issues, is, it's not just one big thing. It's on one level a global issue and on another level it's a localized issue. So for example, California might not have the same kinds of hurricane floods that have happened in Texas and Houston, right? And Texas might not have the same wildfires that California has had. And I think that acknowledgement that acknowledgement of those differences can sort of um, give us a better framing about how we can deal with these issues, right? So for example, as a Californian, now I have a better idea of what climate change relates to me as an individual and relates to me as a global citizen. Because what I can do now is focus on the climate, um, the wildfires in California, and understand that the same climate issues, even though they manifest differently, you know that we are all facing this problem, right? So if I'm talking as a Californian to somebody in Texas who's dealing with some hurricane floods, you know, at least there's this sort of identity that we're all facing this problem, right? So I guess what I'm trying to get at is this sort of this idea that it affects you as an individual and so you should do what you need to do on an individual level to fix it but individualism in this way doesn't mean you're just one person it means that as an individual you can participate in a group with other individuals that have the same interests and issues and dilemmas right i think you covered a lot of really good ground on that 
subject and like i agree with a lot of the takes that like yeah there's not there's not a complete powerlessness of the individual which is kind of where i was already at somewhat but you've articulated it super well climate change is definitely happening locally if you go and you talk to your local i don't know extinction rebellion or dsa or sierra club or someplace in the country democratic party there are actions that are being taken right now about you know do you know who your public service commissioner is uh, because they set the regulations that power companies in the states abide by and in the same way that the situation with enron we talked about that a, a couple weeks ago was a fucked situation based on the actions of this power Power company and then the power company went up in a ball of smoke and the policy changed that is not something that's impossible to do and i guess this is maybe our center central point here change happens really fast when we talk about like spiritual changes they happen fast we talk about mass shifts in opinion they happen fast i mean when this episode started kennedy we talked about what the world was like during the iraq war and i think that was like the darkest most oppressive time to be anywhere to the left, at least in my lifetime. Yeah. Just because there was just no oxygen anywhere. And now, like you have it, and you can find people who believe the same thing that you do, and you can organize with them. And the internet existing has been very great for the existence of organizing. But given that we have just so many tools to come together, things can change really quickly. And Lau, I remember that today you spoke about the mental attitude that it took to have faith in the ability of those rapid changes and that rapid awakening among people. And like, I don't want to completely blow it for you, but you spoke about a hope against hope. Yeah. I think the way you spoke about it was like something that people listening should probably carry with them as we continue. (laughs) So I think this is how I can put it, right? I think the majority of us do feel this kind of hopelessness against this all-encompassing, world-destroying event that's looming over our heads, right? And it involves this kind of hopelessness about what we can do about it. For example, I've thought, you know, and I've definitely hoped before that we can do something about this. And, you know, it's all about just getting the right people together and all of these kind of platitudes that you'll hear over and over again about, yeah, the people are going to come together, man. And just, you know, it's going to be like uh, Woodstock version two, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's true. Like a lot of us have have lost hope. Right. So I went through a spiritual change in the last couple of months, and that opened the door for me to think about what it really does mean to think about myself as a spiritual being. And I was the type of person, like in college, for sure, um, as a philosophy major, to be that kind of logical, sort of reasonable and clear that sort of stereotype, you know, like we have to have the evidence first and we have to logically consider all of these possibilities, blah, 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 blah. And now I've totally done a 180 in terms of my attitude towards everything. And what I mean by a hope against hope is this. For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, so when one of the gospels at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, I'm really not trying to convert everyone here, uh, just to be clear. But I just want to, I guess, convey at what Jesus's followers were feeling at the moment of his crucifixion. So this is a person who you've already seen done countless miracles for people. And so you're just kind of flabbergasted at the very idea that God exists as a human being, right? That's the situation. If you truly were a follower of Jesus at the time, you would just have to be so shocked and fearful that God was right in front of your eyes, right? And doing all these miracles. And then he tells you, I'm going to get crucified. (laughs) And you're like, what the heck? (laughs) So what happens during the crucifixion? This is in the Gospel of Matthew, when they put Jesus up on the cross. And while his followers are basically in despair about the whole situation, that God is on the cross, right? And he says this very particularly hopeless line in the Gospel of Matthew. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, this doesn't make too much sense considering that, you know, Jesus was God. But I think this can be interpreted as, you know, Jesus crying out to the Father, right? So he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he passes away, right? For a follower of Jesus, this has to be the most hopeless time and hopeless moment in their lives. That he was God and he did all these miracles. And he says, how was I abandoned by God, right? To me, that is the epitome of absolute hopelessness and despair, right? After the death of Jesus, there's nothing to look forward to, right? This is the extent to which these followers must have felt during that time, right? But... 
there is a hope against hope, right? So this hope against hope is precisely the faith that true believers of Christianity have, which is that Jesus was resurrected after three days, that there is a life after death, for example, that a sinner can become a saint, right? That's the miracle that, from the Christian point of view, God can do for individuals, is to turn them from this sort of, I guess, desolate and decrepit situation into an actual saint right and of course this goes beyond the bounds of reason and rationality and all of the things that we sort of value in this society is a hope against hope which is a hope that cannot be taken away a faith that cannot be removed from an individual in any kind of situation it is a hope against hope that takes into consideration and takes the expectation that there will be good in the future to heart. Like, no matter what's going to happen to a faithful individual, they have in themselves, in their will, this idea that there will be good in the future. So contrast this with our current attitude about things, where we don't really see an end or a light at the end of the tunnel. And if there is a light, it's going to involve a massive amount of violence, a massive amount of pain and suffering, right? Some of us here um, listening to this podcast right now might not feel any hope about the situation, might not even have a good idea of how to even exercise and express your power. If there even is power amongst the people or whatnot, again, all of these sort of platitudes that we're used to, right? But I would entertain as someone who is fulfilling, I guess, a spiritual role is to see what it would look like for you to have a hope against hope and a hope against any kind of persuasion, against any kind of rationalization or justification, right? A hope that no one can take away from you. Because if you can establish this kind of hope, I think you'll be really surprised to see the kinds of things that you're capable of and what kind of power you might not have been aware of as yourself, right? And this has been particularly true of me for someone who was at the cusp of killing himself in December of last year, who felt like there was absolutely no hope for me Damn. and whatever I could do. You know, it was just hopeless. And I was ready at that time in December. It was it was one night. And I know that my girlfriend at the time, she I think she had the realization that she couldn't do anything about it because this was an individual problem. Like this kind of hopelessness and despair was really on me to fix, right? And I remember the night that I was willing to accept suicide as a real option for me. I wasn't ready to kill myself at the time, but I was ready to commit to the idea, right? What happened to me, and you can obviously be skeptical of it, but just as I was about to commit to the idea, this sort of weird silence came over me and everything became super clear in my mind and super clear in my body. And it was just silence for a good, I can't even tell how long it was. It could have been like a few seconds, it could have been like a few minutes, but you know, there was just this kind of clarity that came into my life. And what I experienced was this sort of inner voice that said, I need help, right? And I think that was at the point where I realized, oh shit, like <laughs> I can ask for help. And, you know, it is true on, in a trivial way that, you know, we are dependent on each other in some way. I am dependent on the farmer that picks up produce from the ground and, and I'm dependent on the trucker that delivers it to the, you know, my local supermarket and whatnot. But I think there was this kind of vulgar individualism that I psyched myself into, that I just needed to do it all by myself. And that if I just relied on myself, I can just figure it out, right? And I realized at that time that, you know, I did need help and that I am, I really am dependent on other people. You know, I, I really am against this vulgar kind of individualism. And I do think that individualism is much more complicated and much more nuanced than we really think it is. So since that sort of what I consider to be a spiritual awakening, that I can indeed ask for help, um, even in my most desperate time, that, you know, I can find hope in other people. And so what I ended up doing since that day was get myself psychiatric help. So I, I, I currently am taking an antidepressant and I'm also taking medication for my ADHD. And since then, since realizing that, you know, I can get help, I've been helping other people and it's my life has been nothing but blessing since then. Like so much of my own development has kind of paralleled with yours of just thinking, well, I've got to fix my myself. I've got to fix myself. And if you're listening to this, the show, like you don't have to fix yourself, man. All that Jordan Peterson shit is just bullshit. You do not have to fix yourself to help somebody next to you. Jordan Peterson was telling everybody to fix themselves while he was 
apparently grappling a massive drug addiction. So take that how you will. Yeah, but like, listen, like, because it takes less to help someone than you think that it does. Helping somebody is not necessarily like saving their life or, you know, transforming their material circumstances. Uh, Helping people in a real way is not like uh, you go to the audience for Oprah and she points at you and you drive away in a car. It's spending time with people. It's giving them something that they didn't know that they had. It's telling them something they didn't know and giving them the encouragement to go through a situation that they might not have the strength to go through on their own. And if you're listening to this and you're fucking thinking about the same shit that the rest of the people who are making this show are thinking about, you're not the only one thinking about it and you're not the only one that's uh, trying to get through it and you're not the only one that is looking for, for help with it and you have that help not just through your parasocial relationship with this podcast, which of course you are enforcing by rating us on iTunes, <laughs> subscribing to us on Twitter, donating to us on Patreon, but also just through your regular interactions with the people around you. Have the courage to to look for it. So there's this paper that I'm writing right now. I don't know if it's going to become a book. And I think this is going to relate to a a lot of people out there because I was definitely what I would consider to be an anti-narcissist. So are you familiar with the story of narcissists? Everyone knows what narcissism is. He fell in love with his own reflection. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an ancient Greek story about how um, narcissists, this person falls in love with his reflection and he ends up dying because he's so enamored with it right and that's how we end up with our concept of narcissism someone who's just so enraptured with themselves that they can't really pay attention to anybody right and i was definitely what i would consider an anti-narcissist which meant that at some certain points in my life i felt like i was so below being loved and I was so below redemption that I was so wretched inside, right? And and you know, there's definitely some social and societal reasons for this. Like you can't get the job you want, you can't get the person you love and whatnot, right? Sure. But you know, there's this kind of shame and this sort of self-blame that we that we do to ourselves. Even if we think about like climate change, for instance, like how can you how can you not feel guilty about doing the, the, the normal things that you're doing and like trying to make sure that you're not polluting the environment, right? You're eating a hamburger, you bastard. Yeah, right. <laughs> but really, I think that for a lot of us, it's way easier to help another person than it is to help ourselves, right? And you know, I was in the situation where I felt like I could never forgive myself for what I've done in the past, or I don't think I deserve love, or I don't think I deserve like goodness, right? And yet it was so easy for me to help other people, right? Even like the person, the homeless person across the street, my friends, my family, I was so willing to help them and whatever, whatever they needed without a second thought. But when it came to me, I just felt like anti-narcissist, right? And the truth is that you're not special enough to think that you're beyond love or below love or below forgiveness or below all these things. It's this weird sort of inverted narcissism that some of these people, including myself, have taken part of, where we think that for some reason or another, we don't deserve these things. And yet, without a second thought, we're we're able to give that love and forgiveness and help to other people. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, you're not special in this inverted sense. Like, you're just like narcissists, but you're just the opposite. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Like, you think you're special, you think that you're wretched, you think you're, you know, that anything you've done in the past, that means that you don't deserve these good things anymore. Like, sit the fuck down, all right? (laughs) Like, you need to sit down and really think, like, what does it really mean for you to help yourself? And why it's not possible for you in this situation to do that? Because it's true, you're not above anybody else and neither is it true that you're below anybody else so there's this sort of contradiction that happens or this paradox where you you know that takes place and i think part of it too does come from the fact that you're not able to treat yourself as another person or in the case of christianity as a neighbor right Mm. so for example like when your friend or when your family or when some internet stranger asks you for help for the most part most of us would be willing to help that person out right yeah especially if what they're asking for is reasonable you know right that's Exactly. Like, yeah. it's so it's you don't even have to think about it. Yeah. And that moment, that person is your neighbor, right? And a neighbor is nothing but the person who's closest to you, right? At the moment. So right now, you're my neighbor. Or to anyone who's listening to this, you're my neighbor. 
And the problem comes from the fact that you can't treat yourself as your neighbor. Because all of these negative thoughts you think about yourself, you're below love, you don't deserve forgiveness, blah, blah, blah. You would never ever do that to your friend or your family member. So why would you do it to yourself is just a sort of weird mystery and strangeness. What I would consider anti-narcissism, right? And I know it's true of myself, right? But I'm wondering if it's true for both of you. <laughs> it's probably true for a lot of people listening to this. You're probably yeah. killing people softly right now. <laughs> A few years ago, I kind of got into the difficult to sort of fully accept within the self, but ultimately very positive kind of personal philosophy that, you know, I shouldn't be allowed to talk to myself and my internal monologue in a way that is harsher than how I would talk to a friend or a loved one. And that was very difficult to sort of absorb as a lesson. But like, if you're out there, put that same rule on yourself if you can, you know, and just try it. Because like, we tend to like, yeah, like Lau is saying, like, just be our own worst enemies and be our own harshest judges all the time. And it can get to the point where you're just in a self-destructive cycle and you can't even like get anything done anymore because you're just convinced of your imminent failure as soon as you walk out the door. But you know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And I think that if I didn't treat myself as a neighbor at the night, you know, I was about to commit to the idea of suicide, um, I think I wouldn't be here today, really. If I wasn't willing to treat myself as another person, then I think I wouldn't be talking to you right now about the kinds of things that we do need to talk about, right? Because there are a lot of people out there who are desperate, depressed, and like teenage suicide rates, they're climbing. It's, it's just ridiculous, right? In the most like prosperous country in the world. Why are people killing themselves? And why are people so desperate? I think that really does take a spiritual perspective. And, you know, it, it kind of goes back to the golden rule. How is it that you're going to treat yourself or treat your neighbor as yourself, right? But anyway, yeah so listen this is gonna uh freak we're gonna freak out a portion of our audience with what i'm about to say and if this freaks you out like don't worry about it we don't talk like this regularly but like uh lao have you considered that like when you do this this twitch stream that you are probably gonna save at least one human being's life over the course of you doing this stream it's possible, right? Considering that you're like, again, we're going to freak some people out, but you're going to like have a platform because like we're all doing this shit together. So it seems very unlikely that we're going to do this for a year and fucking nothing we do takes off. Yeah. Um, so given that, like you are going to be able to not even like in a fucking direct fucking suicide hotline kind of way. But I think that somebody that interacts with you on a prolonged basis is going to see material change in the way that they think about their personal situation and their relationship with themselves and their relationship with other people. And if nothing else, your presence is going to do that. And right. that's pretty cool. <laughs> this could have gotten weirder, but I think that's weird enough. <laughs> Just to be clear, right, I am on a spiritual mission, right? And I think it does it does come from the fact that one night I was I was about to commit to the idea of suicide. And then I did a total 180. And my life has been nothing but blessing since then. And I think that's the sort of reality or that sort of ending that most people don't hear about when they are depressed and when they mm. are sad, right? We kind of aren't able to see what the future holds, but not only what the future holds, but what kind of good in the future holds. And to be really honest, like during that night, it felt like there was no good future left for me. And that's, that's where my spiritual mission is, is really to reach out to, you know, people who have been in the same situation, who feel so hopeless against the world and just try and show them, you know, that the good is possible. That apathy really isn't an option and that there is some semblance of love that can exist in the future. And, you know, it is true, like to like with the Twitch stream and stuff, I really do hope that I'm able to reach out to a lot of desperate people out there and just have a sort of honest conversation about the kinds of things that we're dealing with and the kinds of issues that maybe individuals or groups are, you know, dealing with. And I think that's where I'm going to start with, um, regardless of whether or not it relates to the Marion Wilmington um, campaign. I think that's where my heart is. And then also just to mention that, you know, Marion Wilmington is that kind of candidate <laughs> who can show you what loving yourself and loving other people and what kind of power is in love, what it really looks like, right?
Yeah. And how many hours would that be worth in your time? Like infinite. And it's not going to take infinite hours for any of us. And what's really cool is somebody's going to listen to this like a year from now. And like, maybe they're not in that room thinking about suicide. I don't, I don't think that all of our struggles are that grand at all times. Right. But we do struggle. Like the choice to live, it's not always the choice of whether to commit suicide or not, because there are lots of people who wake up, you know, in the morning and they think about something that they have to do that day and they just roll over and they don't face it. And like they die in a small way for that day. Right. We make a daily choice to live not in the sense of like surviving but in the sense of bettering ourselves and helping the people around us and helping our community and ending the day closer to whatever our dreams are than we started and even if we're in a place in our life where our individual dreams are maybe out of reach for us being able to survive and put one foot in front of the other gives us the hope that our dreams haven't evaporated or anything because if we have the courage to wake up and choose to live, then our dreams live with us. You know, I do think that we do have a decision to make regarding what we're going to do in our lives, right? Each and every one of us has that responsibility, no matter how apathetic you feel. Sorry. <laughs> we do have a decision as to what kind of hope we're going to have for ourselves and for other people. And it comes down to a hope that we've kind of are familiar with. We have some expectation of the future and then we get disappointed, right? And then we lose that hope. What I do seriously want to consider as an option is to have a hope against hope. And that hope is something that nobody can take away. And that does go beyond the bounds of reason sometimes, but it at least can sustain a will for a good future. So I really do hope that you consider this hope against hope, and I hope you find it. I think this has been a very powerful conversation. Now, honestly, I think we could probably just keep talking to you for the rest of the day, but that's not quite how a podcast works. No, listen, we could. <laughs> we literally could. We, we call Ren and we tell him, like, listen, the podcast is two and a half hours. See ya. <laughs> Uh, Lau, where else can people find you? Yes. Um. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter, uh, and my Twitter handle for for that is Orb Future. And Lau has the dopest avatar. Like, listen, we privately talked about. Should we just rip this avatar off? It's just the sickest Twitter avatar. <laughs> I won't spoil uh, it if you haven't seen it. But go to at Orb Future. It's great. And also, I do have a Patreon now. Sweet. So the Patreon, um, I guess, uh, handle is Lambda Alpha Omega. I can send it to you guys so you can actually have it typed out, but it's literally like a Greek frat, <laughs> like Lambda Alpha <laughs> Omega. So if you go there, I have a couple of tiers. If you check it out, I'm, I'm trying to create higher states of meme consciousness. And I got a couple of tears about certain means and stuff. So you're welcome to check it out and hopefully you'll pitch in some money. Very cool. Lau, it's been a pleasure having you on the show once again for an incredible conversation. And uh, everybody go check out the stuff that Lau does outside of this because it's awesome and it's worth your time. Yeah, at OrbFuture, OrbGang.love, Patreon.com. He's got a long-ass Patreon. We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening as always. We've been Not Safe for Wonks and I'm Kennedy Cooper. I'm Brandon Buchanan. And I'm loud. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye. Bye, bye. bye y'all. See ya.